0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here. Glad you could join me today for this uh, live question and answer time. It's Monday afternoon here in California. It's sunny outside, though we had some rain yesterday and last night and expecting more rain tomorrow. Uh, Whoever said it never rains in Southern California, it was a catchy pop song, but it's not really true. And uh, we're grateful that we're not in drought conditions as we were for many years. Uh, Today on the Q and A time, I wanna talk about a subject that I'm gonna bring up having to do with how we can bring comfort to other people. But I just hope you can join me and take advantage of the different things we're putting out right now. Uh, One of those, of course, being a daily devotional during these weeks that we are in um, something of a different schedule. People are locked down. People are self-quarantining, whatever it would be. Um, We just feel that people can have less contact through their normal church congregational channels. So we wanna do a little bit more to meet people's needs online. So on our YouTube channel, there's a daily devotional. Of course, you can do all the things that you're supposed to do, subscribe, notifications, whatever. Uh, but I hope you can join me. So I hope there's just of some benefit to you. And I don't know how long I'll continue to do those daily devotionals, uh, but I'll do them at least until things sort of loosen up in the culture as a whole. It's great to see that there is encouraging news. From uh, many different places in the world, having to do with what we have and what we're gaining in this coronavirus. Um, But it just seems at this point, as I speak to you on April 6th, 2020, that there's still a long way to go until the public health officials are confident that things are better and that things can be loosened up. Now, in the midst of this time, I want to deal with a question that came in last week from a woman named Carol. And this is what Carol asks. She asks, my church family is small, under 50 people. Maybe I should stop right there. Carol, God bless you and what you consider to be a small church family. Um, under 50 people, that still puts you as a pretty good size compared to uh, most churches in the world. You know, um, the vast, vast majority of churches in this world are 100 people or less. So being under 50 people, you're in a lot of great company. God bless those smaller congregations. Anyway, Carol writes this. My church family is small, under 50 people. Today was devastating. We lost two of our family today. How do we offer comfort and peace during these times when we are refrained from personal contact? They were not from the same family and suffered from different ailments. Well, Carol, what a tragedy! I'm so sorry to hear about this. You know, when you have a tightly knit church family, especially a smaller church family, where people not only know everybody by name, but they know something about everybody, and and there's just that warm family feeling among that group, it is truly devastating to lose people, to have people pass from heaven now. Listen, we are Christians, of course. We we understand that those who die in the Lord, they go to heaven. Those who die in the Lord truly go to what people sometimes casually refer to as a better place. Well, we're not talking about some vague better place. We're talking about heaven. And so we we understand that. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, we don't grieve as the heathen or the ungodly grieve. But we would just add, we do nevertheless grieve. There's sorrow for us by extension, and in particular for those who are directly involved. That that elderly man who died, uh, he was somebody's father. He was somebody's grandfather. He was somebody's uncle. Uh, he, he has uh, family around him, probably brothers, sisters, m- maybe even parents. It's, it's a tragedy. Th- th- those people who die, they have close friends. Peoples whose lives are going to be profoundly more empty because someone has gone from earth to heaven. So, Carol, you're asking that question. How do we offer comfort and peace during these times when we are refrained from personal contact? I have to say that this is something of an unforeseen aspect to this whole um, virus that is spreading around the world and that all over the world, literally, people are taking particular care to alter their normal routines so that the contagious nature of this virus, of this disease, won't be so easily passed to other people. In many places, churches are not allowed to gather. In many places, you can't have a gathering of more than 10 people. In many places, uh, you can't visit people in the hospital because they're trying to keep as many absolutely non-essential people out of the hospitals as person. And I think when we thought about how this was going to affect the society, how it was going to affect the culture, we thought, well, listen, there's going to be an awful lot of people getting sick. There's going to be a terrible number of people dying from this. There's going to be a lot of people who are out of work because of this. There's going to be many, many people who are deeply impacted by the economic aspect of this. There are other people who are going to have to work much harder and maybe in dangerous condition. We go on and we kind of calculate all the consequences of something like this. I'll tell you, a a relatively unforeseen aspect of this is being unable to give a comforting hug or arm around the shoulder or, or to hold hands with somebody in prayer who's grieving, who's just suffered a loss. So you think about those people. You think about The person who can't hug a grieving person. You think about the grieving person who can't receive that hug, that arm around the shoulder. I think about those, and I've heard some tragic stories to this effect, of those who can't be at the bedside of a dear one who's dying. And instead of it being as we would think it should be, how it normally should be, instead of it being a case where someone's loved ones are right by the side of the bed. They're helping that person to uh, make that journey from this life to the next. They're alone, except for the surrounded by dedicated medical personnel. Okay, so what do we do? Carol's asking the question, how do we offer comfort and peace during these times when we're refrained from personal contact? Well, first of all, let me give you some ideas. Um, uh, and again, I, I'm just saying this first. I, I don't want to say that this is everything, but of course there's prayer. You, you let people know that you're praying for them. You're praying with them, even if you can't have personal contact with them. So there's prayer, and not just prayer, but letting people know that you're praying for them. Uh, there's phone calls. You can't be there in person, pick up the phone, and give them a call. Talk to them. Pray with them. Share a comforting scripture with them. Uh, Remember uh, warm memories of the person who's passed on. Here's something else you can do. You can uh, write a card or a note to them. You know, this is something of a lost art in our society, isn't it? People actually take out the time to write out a card or a note. We, We do everything by texting. We do everything by email. Uh, communication over social media and such. Sometimes it can be a very precious gift just to write out a card or a note and let them know. Let them know in your phone call, in your card, in your note, let them know how much you wish you could pray for them. Uh, If it's safe for you to do so, prepare some meals. Leave them on the porch and walk away and let them pick up. Now, do, do it appropriately. Do it taking all the appropriate safeguards, of course. But share meals with people. Um, share, help, come alongside the best you can. But Carol, there's no question that this is a challenging time in regard to our ability to give comfort to other people. Now, I think about this in regards to a book I read many years ago. And to be honest, it's a book that's made a big impact on my life. It's a a short book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, that great German believer. In any regard, this book, Life Together, is one of the best books I've ever read on the subject of Christian fellowship. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer writes about in this book is how fellowship is a gift. Now, especially for us in the Western world, in the past generations, it's been so automatic for us that we could go to our congregations, that we could give each other a hug, that we could do all this. It's been so automatic for us that we take it for granted. And I don't heap condemnation upon us for taking these things for granted, but that's just human nature. When you have something without interruption for so long, it's just natural to take it for granted. But we we shouldn't. We should take a step back and we should consider true Christian fellowship is a gift from God. And it is a gift that sometimes some of the greatest saints who have walked this earth have not been able to enjoy that gift. Those who have been persecuted, those who have been isolated, those who have been singular believers in an atmosphere of hostility, on and on and on. There have been many incredibly godly people who have either sort of permanently in their life or as an ongoing condition, or or as a temporary condition, I should say, they've been unable to really appreciate and receive the fellowship of the saints. I, I hope, that one of the results of this strange time we're living through in the world right now will be that it will give us a reset in our mind regarding Christian fellowship, and that we'll be more grateful for it. I mean, look, let's be honest. How common is it for people to say, nah, I'm not gonna go to church, I'll just go next week. It becomes less precious to us because it seems always available. But this can give us a needed, a necessary reset. We can come together and truly remember what a gift fellowship is. And maybe, maybe it'll make some of us less critical of our churches. Look, I know very well that everything at your church is not to your liking. I guarantee you that. Listen, I I was a pastor. I've been a a lead pastor at three different churches. And I can tell you that at those churches that I've pastored, not everything at those churches was to my liking. That's just how it is. Now, we we can choose to dwell on those aspects of our fellowship and community that displease us, or we can be grateful receivers of fellowship. I, I, I pray that this will work deeply in our hearts. I remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Do you remember that great verse? Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I just love that phrase, God of all comfort. It's as if Paul's remembering that there is not a type of comfort that God can't communicate. And though we feel limited in our ability to bring comfort to other people right now, God is still the God of all comfort. And let's look to him and pray to him and trust him to make up what is lacking in this strange, and we pray, very temporary season. By the way, when Paul wrote that, the God of all, comf- all, a God of all comfort, let I me mean, untwist my tongue here. When Paul wrote that phrase, the God of all comfort, he was a man who knew a lot of difficulty in his life. I don't think there's many of us who have had as difficult of experiences in life as the Apostle Paul did, and yet he could write it and mean it and say, the God of all comfort. May God bring his comfort to many, and pointedly so, may God Use this situation to make us more adaptable and more flexible in the way that we bring comfort to other people. Now, before I leave this and get to the questions in the side chat, let me say one more thing. God bless and pray for all the people who are doing remarkable work in this season. I mean, all around the world. But uh, you, you've got many people in the culture today who are kind of idle. Uh, there are teachers and their classes I are mean, being—they're doing the best they can. And it's a lot of work with the online work they're trying to do, but they, they're just not doing the regular job. There's other people, they have this job, that job. They government, they, there are many people who are just kind of, they push the pause button, so to speak. But there are other people, they are working harder than ever in this season. You know that, of course. You know that the doctors and the nurses and the the hospital crews and all the rest of those people, you know they're working harder than ever. You know that the researchers and the scientists who are trying to get to the bottom of all this, you know they're working harder than ever. You know the people in the grocery industry who kind of keep our grocery store shelves stocked with food and supplies and all that, they're working harder than ever. The truck drivers who bring those great supplies all over the world, they're working harder than ever on and on and on and on. Now, when you consider all those people right now who are working hard and you say, God bless those people, Lord, strengthen them. I appreciate them. Yes, don't forget your pastor in the midst of this. And what I mean by this is I, I talk with a lot of pastors and let me tell you, they are working hard. They have the challenge, first of all, of learning and trying to get good at getting out ministry in different ways than ever before, mostly using live streams and all the rest of it. They are faced with attacks of trying to keep in touch with their people when it's a lot more work to keep in touch with their people. Uh, they're charged with facing challenges and difficulties all on their own, and plus all the things that are coming into their lives. Now, I'm not trying to say that pastors and people who work in ministry are having a tougher time than the doctors and the nurses or the truck drivers. No, I'm just saying you should number them among those who face special challenges in this season. You should pray for your pastors, your church workers, those in Christian ministry. They're they're doing a good job and they're doing the best they can. They need your prayers. They need your support. They need your blessings. And one more thing, maybe I already said one more thing, but maybe I'll add one more, one more thing. Don't forget to give during this time. Your church, the the, the ministries that bless you, and they need your continued giving. So don't forget to give. How much did you give? Why don't you just pray about it and ask God? But don't forget, don't neglect your regular paths of giving during this season. All right. That's all for the opening portion. Let me uh, look through our live chat and just answer whatever questions we have here today. Susan says, stay safe, everyone. God bless you, Susan. That's true. That's what we want to be doing. Jim asks the question, how long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before the fall? Jim, that's a great question. Let me just state it again so everybody knows what we're talking about. How long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before the fall? In other words, we find out from the book of Genesis that God created Adam and Eve. Okay, we get that. Uh, That they lived together in the Garden of Eden. And that at some time along the way, uh, the serpent deceived Eve and Adam openly rebelled and the human race fell. What Jim's asking is, what was the time gap between the creation and the fall? Was it a day? Was it a week? Was it a month? Was it 10 years? Let me just say, Jim, the simple answer to that question is, I don't know. (laughs) I'm sorry, it can't be any more benefit. The Bible just doesn't give us any indication. I should say that the Bible itself doesn't even really give us a clue as to how long. If the Bible does give us a clue, I'm not aware of it. And so we just ask us, how long was it? Well, I would say that the Bible doesn't give us a clue, but maybe, and please, you understand, I'm I'm putting that word out front. Maybe uh, human nature gives us a clue. There is something insatiable and curious about the human nature that it would seem to me that it wouldn't take that long in the Garden of Eden before this temptation came to Eve and then to Adam in a very powerful way. So from human nature, I would say not long, (laughs) maybe as short as a week or a month. Um, But I'll be honest with you, Jim, there's nothing in the Bible that either tells us or to the best of my knowledge, even gives us a clue that this was the case. So there you go, Jim. Thank you for that. Uh, Joanne says, the daily devotionals have remained a blessing to me and to others as I'm praying with them and for them. Thank you. Well, Joanne, you're very welcome. Again, I'm quite pleased to put out those daily devotionals, and uh, I hope that not only you'll watch them, but that you'll pass them on to other people. Carol says, "Uh, would you please explain the phrase, rightly divide... Uh, as in 2 Timothy 1:15. Oh, Carol, that's I thank you for that question. That is a great question. Uh, I've turned here to uh 2 Timothy uh, I don't think it's 2 Timothy 1:15 because I'm looking at that. It must be 2:15. 2. 2 Timothy 2:15, 2. of course, where it says this. Let me read this verse. But be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? You know, I I think that's a great question, uh, Carol. And let me just say, I, I think it has to do with the fact that the Bible speaks about many subjects from different perspectives. And the ability to rightly divide the word of truth is to be able to accurately and faithfully, according to the scriptures, understand and be able to explain those many different aspects. So, for example, and I'm going to bring this example up, hopefully without getting into a, a, a long side trail on this, but the Bible definitely talks about the sovereignty of God. The God presented in the Bible is a sovereign God. He does what he pleases. He's not making it up as he goes along. The the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God perfectly revealed to us in Jesus Christ is a sovereign God. We don't doubt that. That's what the Bible reveals. The Bible also communicates to us that human beings have a real choice about heaven and hell and a real responsibility for that choice. I would even say that's a component of having that real choice. How those things fit together, that comes to rightly dividing the word of truth. So the Bible speaks about things from many different aspects. The Bible speaks in some places that we are to sanctify, that is set apart uh, into holiness, that we are to sanctify ourselves. There are other places in the Bible where it talks about the Lord sanctifying us, rightly dividing the word of truth It's coming to an understanding that takes into account these passages, takes into account God's work throughout his plan of the ages and how it comes now into fruition right now in the present age. It's coming into account with all of that and being able to rightly order and to rightly prioritize God's word. So it's also being able to understand what I would say are the greater and the lesser things in scripture. I'll put it to you this way. The Bible has a true ecological concern. I can talk about it from Genesis, extending all the way to Revelation, how the Bible reflects a measure of ecological concern that Christians should have. Christians should care about the environment. I believe that. Now. Should that be the highest priority for all believers universally? If someone were to say yes, I would say you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. Yes, that is an aspect, but no, you're misunderstanding how that should relate into the other priorities of Scripture. So there's a lot of things that just need to be divided, so to speak, in the Scriptures, rightly ordered put in their proper place, understood in their proper context. And this is a work of working hard. This is a result, I should say, of working hard and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us, enables us, gives us the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. But make no mistake about it. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 again. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Look, diligence, a workman. To be able to rightly divide the word truth, it takes a lot of work. So let's work on it together. Great, great question there, uh, Carol. Okay, uh, next question from broken people. Lord bless you, Pastor David. Question, What tips would you give someone preparing a study? Specifically, how can I be sure I'm giving a correct interpretation of a chosen portion of scripture? Well, there is a um, definite framework that you can work through that's often called the inductive Bible study method. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, broken people, but the uh, phrase is simply this: that you go from observation of the text to interpretation of the text to application of the text. But it all begins with observation, learning how to observe what's in the biblical text. Now you would think that that would just be kind of easy. Anybody can just see what's. There. Well, actually, it takes a fair amount of practice and discipline and just a correct frame of mind and good work habits to simply see what's in the Bible text. That's all we're trying to do when we're trying to study for ourselves or whether it's to teach other people. What we want to do is we want to see what's there. Then our understanding or interpretation of the Bible passage should be based on what is actually in the text. See what's there. Build your understanding from what you see. And this is learned by practice. Just what are the words saying? What are the nouns in this sentence? What are the verbs in this sentence? Who is this addressing? Who is speaking? Um, Is this a promise for us? Is it a command for us? Just understanding and asking these questions and having a dialogue with the biblical text. These are ways that we dive down deep to understand very simply and plainly what the scriptures say. Now, a good way to get better at this is to go through a passage, a verse, several verses, whatever, write out your observations, order them, prioritize them, make your understanding, your comments, and then go to a good Bible commentary. Now, I'm a believer in good Bible commentaries. You can't see the bookshelf that's off to my left here, but it's uh, it's filled with a lot of Bible commentaries. Behind me are a lot of Bible commentaries. And of course, um, from my own study and such, I've written a Bible commentary. So you can check out my Bible commentary. Again, it's verse by verse through the entire Bible, at EnduringWord.com. And what you do with the Bible commentary is you come to your own observation and interpretation first, then you check some Bible commentaries that you can understand and that you trust and compare what you've seen with what they see. Now, it's very important that if there is a disagreement between you and a Bible commentator Do not immediately lie down and play dead in front of that Bible commentator. In other words, if you saw something in the text, and a Bible commentator, even if it's David Guzik, maybe I should say especially if it's David Guzik, if a Bible commentator sees something different or something contradictory to what you saw, do not immediately say, oh, well, they're right and I'm wrong. Because you know what? Maybe the Bible commentator is wrong. What what you need to do is look at what the Bible commentator read, or excuse me, wrote, and carefully see if they made a case for their interpretation from the text itself, and then take a look at your interpretation. See if it depends on the text itself, but don't automatically assume a Bible commentator is right just because they have a book or a website that they're right and you're wrong, it may not be the case. Study to show yourself approved, a uh, workman who does not need to be ashamed. By the way, I'll just say this before I go on to the next point. I love the phrasing of that in the King James Version where it says this, study to show yourself, it probably says thyself, to show yourself approved unto God. What I like about that, is that it says, study to show yourself approved. (laughs) So often when I study, it's because I want to show somebody else approved. No, study first to show yourself approved before God, to bring your own heart before the Lord and to study his word. Thank you for that, broken people. Uh, Kristana says, how can you tell if what you're hearing is from the Lord or just self-talk? Christiana, that's a great question. How can we tell if what we hear is from the Lord or just self-talk? Christana, let me just say that many Christians today are way too quick. I hope I gave that sufficient emphasis. They're way too quick to say, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. And it's almost like a just a, a habit of speech for them, in, in that they're really not thinking about what they're saying, and the gravity of what it says, I believe that the Lord told me something. So I think you're asking a really good question. Now, I believe that it's possible that God can speak in and through our natural thoughts many, many times we don't really know if it was the Lord speaking until afterwards, until we look at things in retrospect. You know, a great example of this, I heard a preacher I really respect, the blessed and late, Pastor Chuck Smith. He used to tell the story about one day he's driving down the road and he sees a couple of hitchhikers. This was in the 60s or early 70s when people picked up a lot of hitchhikers, a lot of people were hitchhiking couple was out there hitchhiking. He picked them up. They were driving along the coast. He shared Christ with them. They received Jesus. They really were converted. And that night they came to church and were baptized. And and he looks back on it in retrospect. And he says, when I heard that inner voice saying, pull over and pick up that couple. He says, then I understood that it was the word of the Lord. But not until afterwards, not until he saw all that God did with it. In other words, it wasn't like, oh, Lord, where are you? Oh, you want me to pull over and pick this? You know, oftentimes that stuff is so phony. It's so fake. Why, Why are we even messing around with stuff like that? So oftentimes we only know for sure that it was the word of the Lord in retrospect. Now, there may be times when God speaks a supernatural word. And if it's about anything that has any kind of significance or weight, he will bring a lot of confirmation with it. I'm not going to get into the story now, maybe another time. But when we were in California, I pastored a church in Simi Valley, California, and God spoke to us about moving to Germany. At first, it didn't feel like the voice of the Lord but even through some very clear and powerful prophetic words that were confirmed by so many other things, we understood this was the voice of the Lord. Uh, And again, so a lot of confirmation will come around. And by the way, too, I feel much, much more comfortable when people say things like this. First of all, I'm uncomfortable with anybody who all the time is saying, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. But even when do pe- people do speak about God speaking to them, I am much more comfortable when they say, I think the Lord is saying to this. I believe God is saying this to me. Because listen, honestly, we often don't know for sure until retrospect, and we need to be humble about our ability to hear from God. So those are some thoughts about that, Kristana. Bless you for your question. Um, Friday girl uh, says, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Well, absolutely. And uh, fellowship, that sharing of life, has to happen on a lot of different levels. And God's really impressing on us that there's different ways that we need to connect with each other. You know, that ancient Greek word that we translate fellowship uh, is koinonia. It has a lot of different connections— Sometimes koinonia means fellowship. Sometimes it's used to describe taking communion together. Sometimes it's used to describe giving. But the essential idea behind that word koinonia in the ancient Greek is sharing. Now, of course, there's more to it than that. But that's one of the fundamental ideas behind that word, sharing. We still must be sharing life together in Jesus Christ. We're just trying to do it in some different ways. And uh, this is one of the ways I hope to be doing it right now. Um, This isn't as good at all with us gathering around and having a Bible study together in a room, how wonderful that would be. But it's something. And we thank the Lord for it. All right. Let me get to a few more Bible passages here or questions, I should say, in the side chat. Uh, Agnes says, there's some people who say they are Christians, but are racist. And also make racist comments. Is it possibly racist and Christian how to overcome a racist heart? Well, Agnes, you're asking a good question here. Agnes wants to know, is it possible to be a racist and be a Christian? All right. Yes, it's possible. Now, let me bring a fuller answer to that. Racism is sin. There's no doubt about it. What a terrible thing it is to judge somebody by their race, by the color of their skin, by what part of the world that they come from. You don't want anybody to judge you that way. You should not judge anybody else that way. We should judge one another just on the basis of who everybody is as individuals. Not saying, well, uh, I know what race you are, therefore I know everything about you. I know if you're good or bad. What a terrible way to think racism is a terrible, grievous sin before God. It goes against all that Jesus Christ is doing among his people, uh, tearing down the walls between Jews and Greeks, between slave and free, between uh, Greeks and barbarians, between men and women, Jesus tearing those walls down. The body of Christ is one, despite race, language, social class, all the rest, we are one in Jesus Christ. Okay, racism is a sin. Now, can a person still sin and yet be a Christian? I hope so, because I have sinned. Now, I, I, I don't think I'm a racist. I certainly don't. But there's other sins I commit and have committed. It's kind of like saying, can a person be greedy and be a Christian? Well, um, Yes, God doesn't approve of their greed. And if they're listening to the Holy Spirit, God is working their greed out of them. And hopefully they're growing on a trajectory where that greed will be less and less and less and less. But is it possible to have sin in a particular area and still be a believer? Yes, it's possible. You know, we right now, have been saved from the penalty of sin by Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. By the person and work of Jesus, in particular his work for us on the cross, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's in the past for all those who believe. Right now, believers are delivered from the power of sin, Sin need not have power over a believer. And any power that sin does have, it's because the believer has given that power to sin. In Jesus Christ, sin need not have. We have been set free from the penalty of sin. I'm talking about believers in Jesus Christ. We are set free from the power of sin. And praise the Lord, one day when we are glorified, we will be set free from even the presence of sin. But right now, we still have to deal with it on this side of glory. Great question there, Agnes. Alisa in South Africa, God bless you. Thank you for writing. God bless you. I'm, I'm happy to hear, Alisa that things are getting better in your native land of uh, Italy. Praise the Lord. Um, just looking quickly over. Um, okay, Kirsten says this, and I'll end with this question here. I was watching my church live stream last Sunday, and the pastor said that God brought COVID or COVID-19, the coronavirus, to us because of gay people. What are your thoughts? Kirsten, I I would say no. I would say no. Um, Because I don't think that there's anything specifically judgment-wise in this against any particular group of people. Look, I, I think there's two ways we can error when we talk about the judgment of God. We can act as if God never judges anyone for anything. And that's how a lot of people are today. Look, let's be honest. It says nothing is judgment. Nothing. There's nothing that happens to an individual. There's nothing that happens to a community. There's nothing that happens to a nation. There's nothing that happens to this world that could possibly be considered the judgment of God. That is how most people think today. And that's wrong thinking. God is still on his throne and there are still aspects of his judgment that are at work in the world today. So it's wrong for us just to look at the world. Well, nothing could possibly be the judgment of God. No. But then there's a second place that people err and they confidently proclaim that they know something is the judgment of God when God has not revealed this. Listen, often, I would say normally, we will not know if something specifically is the judgment of God uh, until God reveals it, and usually God revealing this in the age to come. So uh, we recognize that God's judgment is real and that he can pour it out, But I don't see anything in this that would require, that would demand that this is presently the judgment of God. Okay, this is uh, it for today's live question and answer. Please join us again on Thursday afternoon when I'll be here at the same time, 12 Pacific time, whatever that is for you in your particular time zone. Thank you for joining me. Continue to pray. Thank you for your prayers for the Arabic uh, website, for the translation work that we're doing, and for the ongoing work of the Bible commentary. Um, From our website usage, it seems like it's helping some people now at this time, and we want it to do so more and more. God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.